All right, uh, by my calculations, we, we have eight weeks uh, counting tonight. We've got eight weeks in Romans, and there's 16 chapters, and I'd like to make it a nice, clean two chapters a week. We'll see if that happens. Um, I think I can get through uh, one and two tonight, and uh, in a way that, that brings us to, to what I think God would have us uh, hear and, uh, and uh, come under in this letter. Um, so let's pray, and then we'll get into the Word. Lord, thank you for this letter. Thank you for uh, the truth in it, and thank you that it has come to us, and uh, we have the, the honor of receiving uh, this life-giving truth. And I pray that you'd make us good hearers, that you'd open our hearts, that you'd open our ears and our minds to grasp, Lord, the truth that you have for us in this letter. But as we talked last week about... Um, how this letter's for us. It's for, it's for the small communities of God that are full of the Holy Spirit and that are seeking to, uh, to live out the gospel in a dark uh, place. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would be established and strengthened as a little church um, in the kingdom, Lord, in this place, and that it would bear fruit among us and in our city. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. This letter is really about the gospel of God and the implications of the gospel of God. And um, Paul's message to the Romans, to their community, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles, is that Jesus is it. Jesus is the one. The gospel is the proclamation of Jesus. And uh, he, Jesus is the hope for the Gentiles. He says, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. You all need to know that this Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, which doesn't just affect Jews. In fact, more way beyond that, it affects the whole world. This is a matter of, of, of global importance. And he also has some words for his brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh, he calls them in chapter 9. But this is what he says. He says that, that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. It's the power of God for salvation, and it reveals his righteousness. That's what he has to say. And so we need to, that's what he, I mean, he says very plainly. This is what I'm talking about in this letter. And so we need to constantly come back to that as we progress through. We don't change topics, right? The whole letter is an expounding upon this gospel of God, this, this Jewish Messiah, who he says in the beginning was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And it's about the Son of God, and he was descended from David according to the flesh. This is the king we've been longing for. And he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He says, this is the one. This is him. And so he says, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And that reveal is a very important word. Um, it means, it's the same word that is given to the book of, of Revelation, right? It's the, it's the apocalypse, <laughs> we call it. But the revelation is an unveiling, an uncovering Something that was hidden is now uh, brought into plain sight, an opening of tearing back of the veil. 
And he says, the gospel tears back the veil. It, it brings us right into the control room of what God's been up to the whole time. Right? It uncovers the whole plan of God and how he has, in fact, been faithful all along. In spite of the ups and downs of, of the nation of Israel, it, God's been in control, in complete control, and he's been completely faithful the entire time. That's what, the, that's what Jesus, oh, this is how he did it. This is how he was up to. This is what he was up to. Ephesians 1 uh, fills out this idea, or Ephesians 3 fills out this idea. Um, Paul, again, talking about his ministry, his insight into the gospel. He says, uh, Ephesians 3, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known by revelation. Right? This was a mystery. They, they weren't quite sure. They were longing for it. They were praying for it. They were praying for the resta- restoration, the consolation of Israel, the reestablishment of the Davidic kingdom. They were anticipating it. They were, they were praying for it. And they were mourning for it and, and, and groaning for it. The mystery was made known to me by revelation. Same word. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It's been revealed. Now, what is this mystery? That the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Now, isn't that interesting? We usually don't think of the great mystery of God being, hey, the Gentiles are heirs too. That seems to be like a, a marginal, you know, oh yeah, this is for Jews and Gentiles. But for Paul, that's the gospel. This Jewish Messiah is really good news for you all. Because guess what? It's through the Jewish Messiah that God is bringing blessing and restoration and reconciliation to all the nations. The Gentiles, the nations are fellow heirs. Members of the same body and partakers of the promise. What promise is that? That's God's promise to Abraham. To have a family that he blesses and through whom he blesses the whole world. Partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The gospel is a Jewish story. The gospel for Paul is God has been faithful to his promise to Abraham to have a family in the earth through whom he brings uh, uh, into the world a king, a Messiah, to establish justice and to make things right, to set up the way that it always was supposed to be. Of this gospel, he says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. From the very beginning, from creation, this mystery was hidden for ages. And this is what he says in Romans. It reveals the righteousness of God. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So another great statement about what Paul's life was all about. He had found in Jesus 
the, the fulfillment of all those promises that he had given his life. And you know, Paul was a student of the word, a student of Torah. He was zealous for the traditions of the Father. He was looking for the kingdom. He was looking for Messiah. And he found him in Jesus. And he found him in a very strange way. He found him, he wasn't really looking for Jesus. He was looking for something that looked quite a bit different. But Jesus came and blinded him and caused him to see things in a new way. And he said, listen, you've been using your eyesight all wrong. Now look at Jesus and now go back and look at the Torah and you'll see it in a new way. When the scales fell from Paul's eyes, the apocalypse happened. It was revealed, right? And he says, I got to tell you what I see. I got to tell you what this gospel reveals in the story. It's Jesus. So in Romans 1 and 2, Paul begins to answer the question, I mean, he says, Jesus is it. Jesus is everything. That's what he spends the first half of chapter 1 talking about. But then he begins, he kind of rewinds a little bit, and he begins to answer the question, what is the promise that Jesus is the answer to? I mean, what is the problem, sorry? What is the problem that Jesus is the answer to? All right, Jesus is the answer. He is the one. He is the fulfillment. Now, what is the, pro- what is the problem that he's the solution for? And that's what he begins to unpack what is, what, why, why is this good news? What is, the state, what is the state of things? And what is Jesus the answer to? What problem is Jesus the answer to? And he really goes back all the way to Genesis um, in the backdrop is, is Genesis 1 through 11. Right? This is the, the, when God, pre-Abraham, pre-Israel, when God was dealing with Adam, that is mankind, and the way that they were just basically making a giant mess of the world. From, um, from the rebellion of Adam all the way to the Tower of Babel, right? It was one disaster after another, right? In there is the flood, um, and in there is the Tower of Babel, these great, these great cataclysmic moments that God has to step down and judge. Why does he have to judge? Because they've decided to do it all wrong. Right? We talked about the city of man versus the city of God in Isaiah. That's very much in the backdrop here. There is a city of man, and here's how they do things. It's detached from God. It's based on human carnal desire, and it results in some very ugly stuff. So that's what he says. The wrath of God, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's another thing that's been revealed, right? That, God, that God's wrath is directed at the mess mankind has made of the world. God is not happy. <laughs> and it's, it's, you know, we, sometimes we, we think of, you know, God's not happy with that person. God's angry at that person. That's true. But God looks down and he sees, just like in Genesis uh, 5, he sees that, wow, the intention of mankind's heart is evil continually. This is not good. And back in Genesis, it says it grieved God's heart that he had made mankind. He regretted that he had made mankind. Right? But this is, again, why God's faithfulness being revealed in the gospel is such an amazing thing. God said, we're going to wipe them out completely. We shouldn't have done this. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And God didn't abandon his project of creation. He didn't abandon mankind. 
He judged and purged and fulfilled and remained faithful. Right? That's what he's doing. That's what Jesus ultimately has done. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all. Now, what is the problem? And we're familiar with all the things that he brings up later on. But this is the fundamental problem. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay? I'm going to keep going. I'll say a couple more things about that. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them, namely, uh, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Ever since God started this whole thing, mankind has basically known, yeah, that God's there and he's responsible for all of this. But they suppress that truth. They hold it down. They don't let it surface. They don't let it affect them. They don't let it come up in conversation. They suppress it. They push it down, push it back by unrighteousness. Okay? And unrighteousness is a, is a great... I mean, it's just basically the opposite of what God is, <laughs> right? There's God and there's anti-God. That's what mankind in this state is. There's righteous, which is God. There's unrighteous, which is man, right? They're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened because they suppressed the truth. They said, no, God, God's way, you know, we don't like that. God's way, that's, that's a way maybe, but we're not going to go with that. We think, we feel like it should go this way. Claiming to be wise, hey, we know how it should go. I think we'd be a better uh, CEO than God. Right? So we're going to boot him out. We're going to vote him off the board. And we're going to set up this company, this organization, in the way that we uh, feel is according to best practices. We claim to be wise. They became fools. Right? The best efforts of mankind, when detached from an understanding of who God is and the way, what he likes, what he doesn't like, is foolishness. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and, and this comes back up in chapter 3, all have, the verse we all know from Romans, all have uh, sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is where Paul introduces that idea. We were created for glory. We were created for godliness, right, which is another part of the problem. We're ungodly. We're not like God. We were created in his image, right? If you think Genesis, backdrop, he created man in his own image after his likeness to Govern the earth to work it according to what God revealed to them about the way it works. Also in the beginning was wisdom. We read them Proverbs uh, 7 or 8. God created the world through wisdom and was giving, revealing that wisdom to Adam as he would relate with him and they walk together in the cool of the garden in the day, in the garden in the cool of the day. But they, they ditched all of that. They said, we don't want God's input. We know how it's done. And so they exchanged the glory 
that they were created to walk in and reflect. Right? They were created to reflect God and then to order the world according to his desires. That's godliness and righteousness. The problem is that they don't look anything like God and they're shaping the earth according to their desires. That's ungodliness and unrighteousness. So you see the root of the problem. We don't want to look like God and we don't want to do it his way. That's the problem. That's the heart of it. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God and because mankind was created to worship something, they had to fill that void with whatever they could. And so rather than you know, we've turned our back on God. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We want to do it our way. We want to define good in our own way. They've got to worship something. God's created a glorious world. And so they start to worship things that God has created. <laughs> and this is the great irony, right? Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Fine, you want to do it your way? You want to follow your own desires? Watch what comes of the world. Watch what happens. And we did, and very quickly, it became a complete disaster. It went very wrong very fast. The dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's the great irony. Why do you give yourselves, and it, you know, it's not just worshipping a cow or worshipping the sun. It's also worshipping my own desires, my own body. Right? That leads to the dishonoring of my body. When I elevate me and my bodily desires above anything else, it becomes a gross perversion of what my body was created for. And so there's a dishonoring of the body. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations to those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Why does he bring this up at this point? Genesis, right? Why did God create man to reflect him? And how did he create them? Male and female for each other. Right? This was part of God's plan all the way in the beginning. It's not because, and they got so bad that they became homosexuals. That's not what he's saying. He's saying they were created by God in a beautiful way, glorious way. Male and female is the glory of God. And they've gone, look, here's how little they understand about God and why they were created. Men are consumed with passion for one another. Right? It's not that this is some sort of like ultimate sign of the degradation of society, although I think it, it is one. But what Paul's saying is, hey, what's the reason behind all this? Why do we exist? What's our identity? Hey, we, we were created in a glorious way, and male and female is a, is a key part of that glory. And we've even thrown that out the window. You can't get much more fundamentally ungodly than that. Does that make sense? Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. I mean, it's a sign that a a society has, has completely lost its way, has completely suppressed truth in unrighteousness, right? The basic function of the human being 
which is male and female, one of the most basic uh, things about society, right? It's, it's, how, it's, it's how humans themselves reproduce themselves. It's how they exist. It's how they survive, male and female. If it wasn't for male and female, there would be no more humans. And they give, you know, it's such an irony, right? It's such a, it's such a gross, degraded irony that they worship the creature rather than creator. And so it's idolatry, right? This is what Paul is, is saying, that this is where idolatry takes you. Idolatry being worshiping anything except God. Consulting anything except God for the way we live and for identity. So keep those two things in mind. Ungodliness, godliness is our identity. It's what we were created for. Uh, who we are and, and righteousness is how we live. Who we are, who are you, and how, you should, how should you live? Who are you, how should you live? All right, and the, the, the nations, and that's all of us, we've decided that we want to be who we want to be and we want to live how we want to live. Ungodly, and unrighteous. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. I mean, this isn't just a list of gross sins. This is a list of sins we've all participated in. Foolish, faithless, which is basically a breaker of covenants. Infidelity, right? Heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, there's an innate sense that something's wrong with this. I mean, obviously, murder, how can that be wrong? I mean, how can that be right? Um, Things that hurt other people, yeah, you shouldn't hurt other people. They know God's righteous decree, and and usually they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things ought to die, they usually don't know that for themselves. They usually know that for someone that's doing something they don't like. Ah, they should die for that. Right? They shouldn't do that. Well, where did you get that sense of injustice? Who gave you that sense of there is a right, there is a wrong? It was the creator. But here's the ultimate sign of of a society that's lost its way. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them, right? They call bad good. And they say, that's you need to follow your desires. That's the highest value in life. You do what you want to do. And we will protect your ability to do what you want to do at all costs until it becomes something that impinges on what I want to do. And then I want you dead. <laughs> that's what it is. It's individuals trying to trying to live out a deeply depraved, selfish life in society with one another doesn't work. That's why there's murder. That's why there's strife. And Paul is saying, God's upset about this. And he is coming to judge the earth. And he will pour out his wrath on the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of mankind. 
He goes on in chapter 2 to talk about how there is a day of judgment. God will reveal his wrath against this. And I love what N.T. Wright, he says, it is part of the covenant faithfulness of God. God would be an unfaithful God if he did not pour out his wrath on this. He says, it's part of the covenant faithfulness of God that he must react with extreme hostility to all the idolatry which corrupts and destroys and defaces. God's not pouring out his wrath because he's a petty God who wants it his way. He's pouring out his wrath because he created a very good thing that these people who decided they knew better decided to just destroy and deface, right? And degrade what God created for glory. So God says, this will not be. This will be glorious, and I will pour out my wrath, and I will remove everything, and I will cast it out. I will remove it in my wrath so that it can be restored to what it was always meant to be. So that's the state of mankind as Paul sees it. And God is coming again. He's going to judge. He says he's going to judge them by Jesus now. Right? Jesus is the standard. Jesus has reestablished what mankind should be. He is godly. He is righteous. He is the pattern. He is who we are, and he is how we should live. It's Jesus. So then in chapter 2, so that's the problem with the nations, the problem with the Gentiles. But now, Paul says, right, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. And that's somewhat of a refrain in these opening chapters. The Jew first, and also to the Gentile. So he presents the situation of mankind, but now he says, now let me talk to you Jews. You have a unique, there's something unique for you to hear in this. So he says, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. So first of all, if you do any of this stuff, but also don't like that other people do it, what are you doing? That doesn't make any sense. Right? If you want to, if you want to murder, or if you want to go over here and gossip, um, but you think that people who murder should be put to death, you have no right to say that. Right? If you're not going to embrace the righteous way of life, you're no better than the murderer. Right? You're, just, you're just exercising your carnal desire in a different way. In passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So first of all, yes, the nations, the pagans who have gone astray, God's wrath is on them. But God's wrath is also, and maybe in a unique way, on those who want to judge and look around and say something's wrong and it's you all. Something's wrong in the earth and it's, it's the other people. It's them. He says, you too are storing up wrath for yourselves because you do some of the same things as them. You're not consistent. So God's coming to judge 
sin, unrighteousness, and ungodliness, he's also coming to judge hypocrisy. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor, which is what mankind was created for. If you want to find your way to the way that God created you and the way he wants you to live, and you spend your life seeking that out, it's not that you're going to... He doesn't say, unless you do it perfectly, you're going to hell. He says, hey, if you seek for this stuff, if you know that, hey, we were created for a purpose... I want to know that. He says, God will give you eternal life. You'll enter into that life that you were created to live. If you want to, if you seek for it. But for those who are self-seeking, that's really the fundamental problem. Self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Doing things the way I want it. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress For every human being who does evil, yes, you Jews too, to the Jew and to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. So here's a key verse here. For God shows no partiality. All humans were created to be one thing. And that is the image of God in the earth. Jew, Greek. That's why Paul says some other things elsewhere. He says, there's no distinctions, right? Jew, Gentile, even male, female. We're kind of throwing that out. Because why? Because we're all created to be the image of God. And that's our identity. So, Gentiles, and even hypocrites who... The moralists among us, Jew or Greek moralists, hey, we have a moral system. No, God's coming for you too. Your moral system is not his moral system. You're not seeking him. You're claiming to be wise, and you're actually becoming a fool. And and to add to that, you're also a hypocrite because you do the same things that you don't like. Verse 12, chapter 2. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Okay, we're still talking about how God shows no partiality. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. Now he's really starting to to push on the Jews. The hearers of the law. We have the law. We've received it. Yeah, we have a way to live. But they're not justified. They're not set right. And justified is really from the same root word as righteousness. They're not made righteous. Because you you were given the law. (laughs) Because you heard it. But it's the doers of the law will will be justified. Kind of by definition, right? If the law is the righteous way to live, then if you don't do the law, you're not justified. The way you live is is still not right. For when Gentiles, and then now he's going to say, now listen to this, guys. When Gentiles, who do not have the law, they haven't been given the Jewish Torah, by nature, do what the law requires. They find their way, as he was saying, they seek for glory and honor and immortality. They find their way to the way God wants them to live. Hey, God will see that. Yes, I like that. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. And they also have a conscience. While their conscience also bears witness 
and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, and he says this is what it's all headed to, there is a day of judgment. On that day, when according to my gospel, this is part of the good proclamation of the gospel, by the way. He says the day of judgment is part of the gospel. On that day, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. He doesn't judge the carefully crafted identities that we put up. He judges what's going on underneath. That's the, that's the, the measure of judgment. But if you call yourself a Jew, now here's where he really starts to lean on Israel. And this is where the second what's wrong with the world really comes in. What's wrong with the world? Well, it's pretty clear. People decided to do it in an unrighteous, ungodly way. Now, here's another thing that's wrong with the world. God's people, who were meant to be the solution to this problem, they're also, <laughs> they're also hosed. They've also gone astray. Now listen, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, which are all good things, right? This is what the people of God were meant to be, a guide to the blind, a light in the darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, this is the way we, sh- this is life itself. Then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And he's saying, you know, there's, there's a legalist way of applying the law. And this is, you know, where Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, don't murder. But I'm telling you, we're going way beyond that here. And the law was always going way beyond that. But again, because of the hardness of your heart, you've heard, don't murder. That's, but anything else is, is, is fair game, right? You've read it in a way that interprets the law. How can I still technically adhere to this while still do what I want to do? That's not a righteous way. The law was never meant to do that. It was never meant to put a stamp on your desires, and say, feel free to live however you want to live. Just don't murder. Just don't commit adultery technically, right? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. And here's the, here's the problem. This is the big problem. With the world, it's they did not honor God. They did not give thanks. They worshiped the creature rather than creator. Now, this is the problem with the people of God. The name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you. Wait a minute. I thought the name of God was blasphemed because they're gross sinners and they're, they're given to idolatry and all this stuff. That's true. But you were the answer to that problem. And now you are just the same as them. And so now they see you as the people of God and they go, <laughs> what kind of God is that? They're no better than us. What a great God that is. Almighty creator God, look at his people. They do the same stuff. They're sleeping around. They're lusting after one another. They're doing all the same stuff. They just, they just dress better. They just act better. They go around and they're proud that they're circumcised. I'm marked as the people of God. And he says, that's great. That's a value if you obey the law. But what good is a physical marker if that's the only 
Israelite thing about you. If you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is, now this, this would have been scandalous in the, in the ears of the Jewish audience. If a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? That's inflammatory speech. But he's saying it doesn't have to do with the way you identify yourself as the people of God. Are you godly? Are you righteous? You're in the same boat as everybody else. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code but break it. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So the problem with Israel is that they have the answer. (laughs) They know God's solution to the problem. It's written there in the law. But they don't give themselves to it. They make it some sort of exclusionary thing. And they say, well, we are the people of God. Keep those people out. Praise the Lord. He has chosen us. And he's going to address this proud mindset in chapter 9. He says, I didn't choose you because of you. I chose you to show the world that when I choose someone, I can be faithful to them no matter what they do. Watch me do it. I'm choosing Jacob. Not Esau. Esau had the birthright. I'm going with Jacob. Now watch what I can do with Jacob. He's a, he's a nobody. He's a conniver. But I'm going to be faithful. You watch. I'm going to save the world through his seed. Watch me do it. That's what he's talking about. And, and Israel thought, hey, he chose us. Uh, because we're something and we're special. So, these first two chapters, what's the problem that Jesus addresses? Well, mankind's gone astray. But also, uh, Israel has gone astray. And so this is like the semi's gone off into the ditch. And then the tow truck that we sent out went into the same ditch. <laughs> That's the, that's, the, that's the gist of what he's talking about here. And now we got the, we, we got the tow truck, and that was my solution. Now how are we going to get both of them out of the ditch? And then here, this is, he sets the stage for uh, Jesus the Messiah. He's the answer to both problems. He is going to bear all the sins and failures of Israel, and in doing so, he's going to become what Israel was always meant to be. And in doing so, all of the nations will now be able to come to God, which was always the purpose, always the plan. So a couple of applications. Number one is that we need to understand, we need to keep the main problem the main problem. Sometimes we get, you know, what's the disease? Sometimes we focus on certain symptoms at different, based on our sensibilities and based on our cultural situation. We focus on different symptoms of the problems and we really go for those. But sometimes we miss the actual problem. The actual problem is universal. It's the same with every single person. You want to do it your way, not God's way. The problem isn't that it's a homosexual. The problem isn't that there's adultery. The problem isn't that someone is just full of rage all the time. The problem is that they've turned away from God. They don't know that they were created to reflect his glory. And they don't know that they were created to live in a righteous way that brings life. 
to the world around them. That's the problem. People, well, they know it, but they've suppressed it. And they, they bury it down, and they want to keep doing things their way. So we need to keep the main problem the main problem, not just get distracted by the hot sin of the week that, that makes us, oh, I mean, we're in danger then of becoming the people that he addresses. Well, don't get all hot and bothered about that sin when you're still struggling to just love your parents. It's the same, it's the same root, right? So don't get all judgy about that while you're still struggling with this thing over here. You guys are in the same boat. You don't know who you are and you don't know how to live. And Jesus is here to show us both things. A life of sin. So the the problem is people living apart from God according to their own desires. There's There's lots of socially acceptable ways to do that. And there's lots of really ugly, nasty ways to do that. But it's the same thing. It's sin. It's selfishness. A life of sin is not just people calling bad things good. A life of sin can also be people calling good things God. You see what I'm saying? Guess what? The sunset's great. But if you just live, if your heart longs to just go and walk on that sunset beach, and that's what you just, that's what you long for in your deepest being, you're an idolater. Because what about the God who put that sun there? What about how he says about what you should long for and desire? All right? So sin's not just people doing bad things and saying this is good. It can be people doing very good things and giving themselves to things that aren't God. And that's still idolatry. And it's still ultimately destructive and degrading to the life that God has called his his sons and daughters to live. We often get fixated on the symptoms. But Paul's very clear about the symptoms and that they're not the ultimate problem. The problem begins all the way back, way deeper than any, than any physical manifestation of it. And the gospel's not, this is the, this is the other key, the gospel's not a treatment for the symptoms. The gospel's a treatment for the root. And if we really don't understand what the root is, that God's trying to get someone to turn from their own desires living according to their own desires and turn towards him and submit to his way of life and receive the Holy Spirit and the empowerment to do that. If that's not the gospel, or if that's not what we're, what we're aiming at, the gospel's not really going to land in the way that it does. Now, God does, in the gospel, deal with particular sins, particular kinds of sins. But he does it by, in each case, turning you from your own desire toward his desires, towards his heart. So that's the first application is is to keep the main problem the main problem. Always to keep that in mind. Every person you come into contact with, every person you reach out to, they're all in the same boat. They all have the same problem. And people are all kinds of different. We like to sometimes relate to them differently based on their, their particular mix of symptoms. It's the same problem. Everybody's in the same boat. And the same problem that you had. Amen? The second, the second application is this. We really need to be quick to realize that being the people of God does not mean we get to do all the things that everybody else does just in a less gross or obvious way. We don't 
have this church now and, hey, we can basically live according to our own desires here because, you know, this is a socially acceptable way to do it. We can have the lives that we really want, not a gross life, but a pretty good life. And just I can enjoy life in the way that I want. God says, well, that's the whole problem, y'all. You were the answer. You were supposed to be given for the needs of the world to turn this ugly thing upside down. And you went and you just got distracted by your status as the people of God. Hey, we've got a nice thing going on here. Let's keep everybody out. Let's do things our way. Thank God. Hey, we're not going to hell. We're not going to work because we're saved. We're the saved people. We're the chosen. Everybody else, they're going to go to hell unless they want to be just like us. That's not what Paul's saying. (laughs) You too. If you get caught up in your own desires, you've gone off course too. You've fallen short of the glory of God. Israel's glory was to be a servant to the nations. Right? And to suffer to see the nations reestablished to God. That's what you get from Isaiah, right? That's what the servant of God. But they failed in that calling. And they fell prey. And they kept insisting, but we're the people of God. But we're the people of God. And God said, well, all right, you're going to have to go into exile. I called you the people. You're no longer the people. You're going to have to leave. So if we are not doing our part, if we're not living out our call as the people of God now to be part to to be restorers of the glory of humanity back to God, then we're just as much a problem as the problem that we think that we're addressing. <laughs> Does that make sense? If we're not part if we're not part of the solution, we're part of the problem. If we don't see ourselves as God's answer to the ugliness of sin, God's answer to the world's needs, then we are just as much of a problem as the world that uh, went off course. We are the tow truck in the ditch with the semi-truck, and we're both there. And this shifts at least some of the burden of responsibility for the way that the world is to the people of God. We, not, we might not be the reason that there is fornication, adultery, murder, homosexuality in the world, right? But we could be part of the reason why there is still those things going on in some cases. Because we've allowed it. Because we haven't preached righteousness. We haven't lived righteousness, right? And we're not causing people to sin, but what I'm saying, you hear what I'm saying? If we haven't seen that we are the place we are the, the, the group of people that doesn't do that, and we're calling people to turn from those things. If the church stops doing that, then why are we complaining that those things still go on in the world? God gave an answer, and he told us to go make disciples, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded, show them how to be godly and righteous. And if the church fails to do that, why are we complaining about the world? In the way that it is. Right? God God answered the problem. And we're it. He answered it in Jesus. And Jesus said, follow me. I'll make you disciples. And as you go, you will make disciples of all nations. Baptize them. Teach them. This is the plan. 
This is God's solution to the problem. And if we don't want to get on board, we've got to stop complaining about the problem. And just accept that, you know what, I'm going to live in this gross, broken world, and I hope God is okay with me (laughs) on Judgment Day. I hope he's okay with the life that I live. Does that make sense? So there's a special kind of unique warning here, exhortation, to the people who think they're the people of God. And he clarifies that too. And obviously this is all about Jesus, right? This isn't about, we can't just go off and say, we're going to solve all the world's problems. But we have to realize that the people of God were always, from Abraham onwards, they were God's answer to the problem that Adam introduced. They were the way God was going to be faithful to bring humanity back to himself. And we are part of that. And so that theme runs all the way through Romans. But Paul here in chapters 1 and 2 has set out, what's the problem with the Jew and the Greek? And I think we have a pretty clear understanding of that moving ahead. Now he's going to, in chapters 3 and 4, he's going to go back and say, see how this was always the, the, the plan? And he's going to talk about Abraham, and we'll talk about that uh, some next week. Amen? Well, any, uh, any questions or uh, comments? The question that, uh, that starts chapter 3 is, so what advantage has the Jew? <laughs> so is it, is it just, should we just not even talk about that anymore? What about Israel according to the flesh? Paul's going to say, well, let me tell you. Some glorious things God has done through the, Jew, through the Jews. Uh, and again, all of those culminate in Jesus. All right, well, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would continue to uh, keep your hand on us as we go through this book, that we would um, see you clearly, that we would see ourselves clearly. And uh, Lord, as Paul says in chapter 12, that we'd be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Uh, Lord, that we would become more and more that godly and righteous people who are addressing first in ourselves, but in the world around us, the root of the problem. And, and receiving the, the answer of Jesus, his body, his blood, his life, his spirit poured into our lives as the answer uh, to our problem, to the city's problem, to this nation's problem, to, to all nations, Lord. Help us to have that big of a vision that uh, we look beyond just us and our, our little crew here and our little salvation. And we see that you are, are causing us to participate in the restoration of all things the restoration of the world. Expand our vision, Lord, and expand our hope and our expectation um, and do it for the, the glory of your Son in this church. In his name, amen.